So we're going to look at Matthew chapter 6. We're going to read the Lord's Prayer again, verses 9 through 13, and then we'll dive in to what God would have us to pray this week. Matthew 6, verses 9 through 13, Jesus says, pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. And as we say each week, the grass withers, the flowers fade, but not the Word of God. It stands forever. Amen. So I don't know if you've ever heard this story, but in the early 1990s, there was this enterprising businessman who had connections to the mafia in the southern part of Italy in a town called Naples. And he decided that he was going to help a chemical waste company dispose of sort of their hazardous material. Well, to make a profit and to do it on the cheap, he found a rural part of the community and he dug a hole a mile deep into the earth. It was a pretty big hole. And then they began to spill thousands and thousands of gallons of chemical waste into the ground. And then they covered it up and backfilled it with concrete. And they thought, that'll keep it safe. And they filled in the hole and they buried it pretty deep. Now, what do you think happened? <laughs> you think it just went away? Well, what ended up happening is over the course of the year of years, uh, the town started to smell this incredible odor. And there was this yellow stuff coming out of the ground. It had actually, these chemicals had gotten into the water and contaminated it and started to come up through the cracks and crevices of that concrete until it spilled out. And when it did, it did incredible damage to the community. People got sick. Uh, businessmen were indicted for this huge cover-up. Uh, people went to jail. But even greater than that, uh, people contracted life-threatening diseases and died. And uh, it affected the whole community. This was a touristy place. And suddenly, it was economically turned upside down. Now, well, that story's crazy, but we've heard stories like that. There, probably in the last 30 years, 40 years in the United States, since the 1970s, there has been 10 notable toxic waste dumps that people have tried to get away with and just put it under the ground and hope it goes away. But when we hear that, and then we hear that it came out badly, none of us are ever surprised by that. None of us are shocked. Like, I don't know anything about radioactive waste. But I know this. <laughs> you can't just put it in the ground and hope it'll go away. Um, it's going to turn out badly. 
And all of us know that. All of us say, yeah, it's totally obvious. And uh, I I didn't even major in chemistry. But I know that's what's going to happen. And yet, what I would suggest is that when we consider our lives, many of us are really guilty of the exact same thing. There's a movie, Gone with the Wind. Scarlett O'Hare in that movie has a great quote. So she kills somebody. And she says, well, I guess I done murder. But I'll just have to think about that tomorrow. And so she decides she's just going to bury it and try to ignore it and sweep it under the rug and hope that life goes on. And what I would suggest is that for many of us, when it comes to our strategy for how we're going to deal with a world and a life that's full of brokenness and guilt and shame, boy, the number one thing we'd like to do is just ignore it, to bury it deep and to hope it goes away. But we can't do that because guilt is like radioactive waste and its potency is there for a very long time. And when it begins to leak out and it will, what does it do? It poisons everyone around us. It comes out in bitterness and resentment and cynicism. It moves us away from serving and leadership. We think to ourselves, because of our guilt and our shame and the places in our lives that we cover up, I could never lead. I could never serve. And so we stay on the sidelines. Guilt drives many of us to addiction or alcohol or sex or food or power or control approval. It can drive us to workaholism or being obsessed with our bodies and our image. Guilt is overwhelmingly powerful, especially when we consider past regret, places in our parenting where we know we've blown it and we've failed, things that we've said to our spouses, places where there's been abuse or betrayal, or we've hurt people with our words, or when people have done that to us, and when all that starts to pile up in front of us, if we're honest, we don't know what to do with it. What am I going to do with that? So we'd rather run and hide. We'd rather ignore it. We'd rather sweep it under the rug and hope it goes away. I read a very interesting article this week about the power of guilt and the shame that um, guilt has on the, the human soul. And it was an article by a pretty well-known psychiatrist, somebody who's been practicing for decades. And their conclusion at the end of the article was this. I fully believe that 60 to 70% of my patients could be released tomorrow if they could simply be assured that they were forgiven. Isn't that amazing? 60 to 70%. Well, last week, Andrew talked about the Lord's Prayer and the introduction to the Lord's Prayer, starting with some vertical prayers. That's the way it starts. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. So all of this is vertical. But last week, Andrew talked about our daily bread. And that's where the Lord's Prayer turns horizontal. We begin to pray for our daily needs, our daily provision. Not do, I, do I not just need uh, sustenance for my physical body, but this morning we're realizing that I need 
sustenance for my spiritual body as well. And chief among the needs of the soul are renewal and hope and freedom that come with hearing my heavenly father say, my beloved, you are my son, you are my daughter, and I forgive you. You owe me nothing. Do you know that the only way to get rid of guilt and shame is to hear someone say with a face of acceptance, you owe me nothing. I love you. You're mine. That's the only thing that can bring a clean conscience. So let's pray for a minute that God would give us ears to hear and eyes to see what he would say to us about forgiveness. Father, there is so much in our lives that is scary and overwhelming and we don't even know how to begin to deal with it. But help us to see this morning that you have dealt with it in the person of Jesus Christ and that that can give us a freedom and a confidence even with knees that are shaking and wavering to come into your presence and to say, Lord, Lord, I've blown it. Forgive me. God, would you give us ears to hear? Would you open our hearts? And would you speak to your people this morning deeply? We have need to be forgiven. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, so when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he said, uh, pray like this. Uh, Father, forgive our debts as we forgive others their debts. And the first thing what I want to look at this morning is sort of this idea under three quick headings. The first is understanding forgiveness. So in order to be able to pray this prayer, we've got to understand what we're praying. And secondly, I want us to uh, look at asking for forgiveness. What does it look like to ask for forgiveness on a daily basis? If God is asking us to do this, We need to know how to do it in a powerful way. And thirdly, we're going to look at extending forgiveness. Because in this prayer, Jesus at the end of it has mysteriously coupled together the idea of our receiving forgiveness with extending it to other people. They go hand in hand. So we're going to look at that for just a minute. But first, I want to look at understanding forgiveness. Now, the word in our passage here is debt. Uh, We say, forgive us our debt. In Luke, it's actually forgive us our trespasses. So it's really two words saying the same thing for sin. But in this particular translation, the focus, the nuance is slightly different. It's on debt. And I like that because it helps us understand a little bit more of the nature of sin and forgiveness. There's a financial term. This is financial language. And the concept behind this term is that forgiveness means wiping out a debt. There's a debt that is owed It could be $10, it could be $10,000, it could be $10 million, but there's something owed, and when somebody cancels that debt, that number goes to zero. The ledger turns different. And that, in the simplest terminology, is the definition of forgiveness. It's saying to somebody else, you no longer owe me. You no longer have to do anything. The debt is paid. 
Now, imagine that you have a bunch of kids that are coming into your front yard to play ball, and one of them hammers a pitch through your window, and it shatters. That kid owes you, there's a debt, he owes you a new window. Now, there's two things that you could do in that situation. You could make him pay for a new window, or you could forgive the debt, okay? So that boy could knock on my front door with $50 in his hands and say, hey, Mr. Wozniki, I'm so sorry I broke your window. Here's 50 bucks. And I could say, 50 bucks? What is that, the first installment? It's going to take more than that, (laughs) right? So that's one option. I can make him pay and make sure every penny is paid. Or I could say, hey, bud, it's okay. Listen, I forgive you and you owe nothing when it comes to this window anymore. Now, here's what we have to understand when it comes to forgiveness. That if I do that, it doesn't mean that the debt disappears. What it means though, is that somebody has to pay for it. The window still has to be fixed. I am choosing to absorb the cost of the debt. So let's take that a little bit deeper. What if the debt owed is not something small like a window. But let's say that it's something much bigger. Let's say that what's been broken is something way more precious, that perhaps people have told lies about you, and there's been character assassination, and your reputation has been uh, taken through the mud. What if uh, somebody has betrayed you and violated your trust? What if someone that you, uh, what if somebody trashes somebody that you love and there's cruelty towards that person? You know, so when someone wrongs you in that kind of way, we would say it's not just a financial debt that is being incurred. There's a moral debt. There's something deep that has been wounded and cannot simply just be paid for with money. What does it mean to forgive somebody like that? So I want to talk about that in just a minute. We're going to unpack that. But before we do, I want to take it a step deeper. What about in our relationship with God? What about when there has been betrayal and character assassination and cruelty towards the things that God loves? Disregard towards the things that God has created towards his children. What is the debt that is owed in that situation. When I came to Christ in college, this is the first verse I ever learned, Romans 6.23. It tells us what the debt that is owed is. For the wages, it's a financial term again, the wages of sin is death. The wages of sin is death. The debt that is owed because of my sin is my life. My very life and my a spiritual and eternal separation from God. And I think that if we shudder against that and think, that's just too much, I think it's because we really don't have the strength to summons the ledger that's against us, the real spiritual ledger, and to take a close look and let God examine our hearts and our minds, not just the outward things, but the inside stuff, the deep places of our heart, to see the greatness and the beauty and the love and the glory of a holy God juxtaposed with my heart, which is spring-loaded towards rebellion and autonomy 
You give me the very breath of life. You give me your image. And what I want to give you, if I'm honest, is the middle finger. I want you to just get away. I don't want you in my life. This is how our hearts are spring-loaded as fallen people. And so if anything that our study of the Ten Commandments, last year we did the Ten Commandments in the fall, if there's anything that that series showed us, it's that the law of God is, are not just these incidental things, one through ten, but they are things that represent the character of God, the name of God, that his kingdom and his glory is woven into each commandment and meant to be woven into our, our hearts. And so when we break the commandment, it's not incidental and small. It's not willy-nilly. It's not just, oh, I did a little bit of this, a little bit of that. It's huge. It's cosmic treason. It's that my heart is spring-loaded towards selfishness and rebellion. And so what we're faced with in the gospel is this debt, this massive debt, that the wages of my sin is death. And yet, the end of that verse tells us something equally as massive, even more so, even greater. And that's what? But the gift of God, the gift of God, we're no longer dealing with anything earned. We're dealing with a gift. But the gift of God is Jesus Christ. It's eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Eternal life. I get relationship with God again, face to face, in his presence. And so what the gospel says is that God the Father has taken the record of debt against us. And he has paid for it by nailing the record of debt to the cross. Colossians chapter 2. It can't just sweep it under the rug. If I say to the kid, hey, look, you're free. You don't have to pay for the window. And I don't pay for it either. Then brokenness just remains. And the window remains broken. But God is committed to redeeming you and me and this world. And so he says, I will pay. And the record of debt was paid for Christ on the cross and when I trust him by faith, I receive his record for me. I say, Lord, my heart, spring-loaded towards selfishness and autonomy, but the heart of Jesus Christ was spring-loaded towards glory for God and a heart for others and dependency upon the Holy Spirit 24-7. And by trusting in that, I get to receive debt-free a declaration that I am forgiven. It's amazing. Debt paid, debt absorbed, free forever. And that's called justification. Justification, a legal term, a courtroom sentence brought forth, not guilty, nothing owed, finally free. And every one of us needs that to enter into his kingdom and to live there. Now, if that's true, the question is, why in the world does Jesus, because if that's true, that what Jesus has done is wiped out every single one of my sins, past, present, and even the sins that I've yet to commit have been transferred to his record, and I get his perfect record, then why would God call us to keep praying every day, Father, forgive my debt? And the answer is because that salvation is not just about our justification. 
But salvation is also about our adoption. It's about being in the family of God. And so in justification, we're in the courtroom. But now the courtroom disappears and we find ourselves living in in a different place, in the home of God, at the dining room table, in the living room, adopted children with God. The way that we live the daily life of the Christian faith is through the lens of our adoption, our identity of this, as sons and daughters of the king. And so when we fail now, when we fall short, we don't lose relationship, but we can incur displeasure and we can break fellowship with God. So we're going to unpack that in a minute, but I want to apply that first. Because if you th- think about this, if you let wrongs and if you let hurts pile up in your family, in your own family, and you just sort of don't deal with them, and you try to sweep everything under the rug, what, what happens at home? I mean, it gets awkward. People don't communicate well anymore. There's a lack of trust. Nobody is happy anymore. Uh, you know, there's a lack of communication. You can't talk to each other. Uh, family meals and vacations are a nightmare. Your family's dysfunctional when you let stuff pile up, right? That's what happens. I say this from experience, but we can't even play Monopoly when stuff is piling up. And so when one of my kids says, I hate you, you dumb cheater, that doesn't mean that they're just mad because they had to go to jail without passing go. It means that there's something deeper going on that's been sort of swept under the rug and it makes me as a parent go, hmm, I think we might need to deal with that a little bit. Hey, so we, we get that. Um, what happens when you as a Christian let your wrongs pile up with God? Well, God says that you develop a dysfunctional soul that's full of shame and guilt. And so here's what Jesus teaches us in this prayer. In the same way that we need daily physical provision, depending on grace, give us our daily bread, we also need daily soul provision to believe again and again that this forgiveness that's been purchased for us is ours right now about this specific issue, about this specific sin, and for that gospel to come into my heart, to see his smiling face, to hear his voice, to hear him say, you're mine. Jesus has paid for that, and you owe me nothing. This is probably the most important thing I'll say in the whole sermon. So if you have to tune in for just a second, I would want you to hear this. There is absolutely nothing that can deal with your guilt, your sense of shame. There's nothing that can deal with it and put it away except going in front of your heavenly father and hearing him say with a face of acceptance and a warm embrace, I've paid for that and you owe me nothing. And when you hear that, there's a clear conscience on the other side. Listen, we cannot medicate your way through guilt and shame. You cannot do enough yoga. You cannot come up with a great diet plan. You can't ignore it. You can't minimize it. Shots of good bourbon at night will not take care of it. The only thing that can take care of it is standing in front of the person that you have offended and violated 
and hearing them say back to you, I forgive you. You owe me nothing. Isn't that true when you do that one-to-one with somebody else? Isn't it liberating? Isn't it freeing to be able to do that in relationship? How much more when we do this with our Heavenly Father on a consistent basis? There's so much freedom here. There's so much that we're meant to experience by entering into this daily confession of our sin. Now it's scary, and so I want to talk about how do we do it? What does it look like for us to do this the right way? Because some of us can be tempted to sort of just make this wild general prayer at night. If we're honest, sometimes when we pray, we lay our head on the pillow at night and say, oh, Lord, thank you. Um, You know, it's a good day, and just thank you. Forgive me for my sins. Just kind of, you know, all the stuff I did wrong today. I wasn't perfect. Would you just forgive me? And I want to say that none of us are general sinners. We're specific sinners. And what God is calling us to in this prayer is that we would pray specifically about our sin with him. Does that ever work? Would you think that would work in your relationship with your spouse? Like, hey, babe, just before we go to bed, listen, uh, I just want to, I probably messed up today. And so in whatever ways, real or imagined, that I've offended you, I'm so sorry. Good night. Like, that's not ever going to work, right? I think we probably all get that. Um, what would your spouse say? I'd like to talk about that a little bit. <laughs> could we press in? Uh, could we go back? I, I want to understand a little bit more of what was behind that. And so why would we ever think, oh, yeah, God's good with me just saying, ah, oh, forgive us. No, he's calling us to make, to see our private prayer life become a place where we bring specific thoughts and attitudes and words and actions We zero in, slow down, and create space to connect with our Father deeply. So I want to look at uh, this passage real quick and make three quick observations about David's prayer of confession. It's what we read in our own uh, confession this morning, our corporate confession. And so I was reading back through this this week, and I thought, there is some really, there's a couple really quick important nuggets that we need to see in this if we're going to pray for forgiveness the right way. And so let me throw it up on the screen again. Psalm 51, uh, Psalm 51. So this is David's life, right? This is where it's one of the most famous prayers of confession in all the Bible. It's where he has committed uh, an affair with Bathsheba and had her husband murdered. And now what's happening the toxic waste of his life that he tried to bury deep is starting to pollute and come out and smell bad in Israel. And Nathan has something to say about it. He says, hey, you can't bury that. There's going to be disastrous consequences. It must be dealt with. And so here's David's prayer of confession. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was bought forth in iniquity and in sin. Did my mother conceive me? 
Okay, first thing to note, and it's in your bulletin, asking for forgiveness means this, no more denial. No more denial about the capacity for sin in your life and your propensity for sin. It's a realization that what I've done, well, that's not just something that came, it's not a crazy surprise. I, di- I didn't do this, it just came out of left field. It's so against who I really am. No, what David says here is I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. And Derek Kidner, who writes a great commentary on the Psalms, this is what he says. He says, David, when he prays this, he's considering his affair with Bathsheba, this murder. And he's saying, you know what? This isn't some wow, wild thing that happened, but actually the seeds for this horrendous thing have always been present in my life. And all it took was the right circumstances to water this particular seed of sin, this part of my heart, and it came out in these totally horrifying ways. And so part of our daily confession is this, Lord, I have a propensity to live in denial about the way my words and actions could potentially hurt you and others But behind those words and actions is something far worse. Something that's been true about my character for as long as I can imagine. And without your cleansing, without your grace, it will surely spill out. No more denial. Secondly, asking for forgiveness means giving a full, clean confession. That's what we're calling it, a full, clean confession. David says, I know my transgressions. They are ever before me. And against you, Lord, I have done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. It's not, well, mistakes were made. There were lapses in judgment. You know, I was tired. You know, no minimization, right? No relativizing this. uh, No blame shifting just full responsibility and awareness that what I did was sin and evil in your sight. That's where real repentance begins. Real repentance begins where blame shifting ends. Are you at that place in your daily confession with the Lord? Oh, Lord, just yeah, thank you. I'm so sorry. Uh, no, Lord. Full, clean confession. This is so important. That's the only way that we experience full forgiveness. So a friend of mine, I'll illustrate it this way. So I have a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he tells the story like this, that when he was young, when he was a kid, he was out in the woods, and he picked up a log by one end. And as he got the log up, he realized, I'm in trouble. This thing's about to crush me. And so he decided, I'm going to throw it off of me. But because he didn't have the whole weight of the log, when he pushed it, it just kind of went and crushed his foot. And what he says about that event is the only way that you can push the whole log is if you take the whole weight of the log upon you. That's the only way it comes off. And so when we think about our sin, the only way that there can be full cleansing is when we accept the full weight of our sin upon ourselves and give it to him. And lastly, asking for forgiveness involves heart 
renunciation. David says, Surely you desire truth in the inner parts, for the truth and cleansing to go deep down. That's what you desire, God. And he says, Against you and you only have I sinned. Now that's crazy because we would say, Certainly David sinned against Bathsheba. Say, certainly uh, he sinned against Uriah. Certainly he sinned against the whole community. What is he saying when he says, You and you only? God, have I sinned? Well, it's just David saying, listen, behind every sin in my life, behind everything that I do to hurt other people, there is a deeper sin. And first, before there was a physical adultery with Bathsheba, there was spiritual adultery towards God. It's the sin behind the sin. It's that the breaking of the first commandment is what leads to the breaking of the other nine. It's always this, God, I've offended this person, but why? Because against you and you only have I sinned. And I want, and you want to talk about that. David says, search me, God, and know my heart. This is the prayer of David. Do we pray like that? So let me give you an example. Just imagine hypothetically, that you've ever been rude or mean to your spouse, that you've had a bad attitude towards them. And so you confess to God, God, I've had a bad attitude towards my spouse, towards her today, and uh, I'm sorry. Now, what Psalm 51 is teaching us to do is to press pause and to listen and to let God probe and to say, as he often does through his spirit, well, why do you think that was? What do you think was behind that attitude? Well, honestly, Lord, I think I'm arrogant. And I want things to go my way. And I'm selfish. And when things don't go my way, I sulk and I pout. And everyone in my family knows when things aren't going my way. And so maybe you listen a little more deeply. And God says, Andy, don't you know that I've given you a high calling to love your bride as Christ loves the church? Oh, Lord, please forgive me. I didn't even consider that part of my anger towards my spouse was a failure to consider your high calling and your love for me. And I realize now that before I ever sinned against her, I sinned against you. And I just want to confess that I thought of myself as the center of the universe, not you. The truth is, I am arrogant, and I'm sorry, and I see that now. And so I bring my sin before you, Lord, for cleansing and renewal and healing. This is what David's talking about. Create in me a clean heart. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. And here's what I want to say. To the degree, only to the degree that you and I are willing to do this, that you and I are willing to daily be honest, to call a spade a spade, to not say, oh, that's just some crazy thing out of left field. That's not who I really am. But to be honest and specific and to bring it before him with heart renunciation only to that degree can we then experience what David says here. Restore unto me the joy of my salvation. He wants to, he wants to give you that gift. We get to come and receive it when we pray for forgiveness this way. And lastly, 
The last point today is the forgiveness of others, extending forgiveness for others. So there's the idea of understanding forgiveness. There's the idea of asking for it. And then lastly, we're to extend it to other people. Now, he says in this passage something that can be confusing. It's right at the end of the Lord's Prayer. Jesus circles back around and he gives commentary on one verse, our verse for the day. In verse 14 and 15, he says, For if you forgive others when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their sins, neither will your Father forgive your sins. So we probably need to clarify what he means by that. What he does not mean is that somehow the forgiveness of God is conditioned upon us being able to or willing to confess other people. The moment that we talk about it that way, then suddenly God's forgiveness becomes something that we can earn and it's no longer a gift. But we already talked about that. It is a gift. God's forgiveness is not conditioned upon our forgiveness of others, but rather if it is real and if it is flowing into our lives, then it will always flow out of our lives. That's what he's saying here. That if it has flowed in, it will flow out. But if God's forgiveness has not flowed in, it will not flow out. And if it's not flowing out, it's because it hasn't flowed in. There's a Christian poet, George Herbert, he said it like this, he who cannot forgive others burns down the bridge that he himself must pass for everyone has need to be forgiven. And so what is the impetus? What is the catalyst for being able to forgive people who have hurt us? It's the forgiveness that we've received from God. Now, sometimes we recognize that forgiveness in some cases can be a lot easier to forgive than others. Sometimes, you know, it's just a broken window. But other times, it is significant betrayal, significant hurt, gossip. It's character assassination. It's abuse. And so what about in those situations? How does somebody pay in that situation? How do we forgive in those situations? I would say that probably what most of us understand is that the only way that someone can really pay a deep and significant moral debt is by suffering. We want them to suffer. And if they suffer, and not only do we want them to suffer, but we want them to know why they're suffering and that it's connected to what they did to us. And only as they do that do we think that they can be forgiven or let off the hook. And that's the way the justice system works. But I would say that when our heart focuses in that direction, what ends up coming out is this fantasy of me wanting their life to fall apart and their marriage to fall apart and their job, for them to lose their job and be humiliated and for them to fail as a parent. I want punishment that fits the crime. Isn't that how you feel sometimes towards people who have wounded you? And yet if you keep fantasizing that way, it'll poison your soul. That's what Jesus is teaching us here is that the toxic influences and waste will start to come out and it'll affect everybody around us. 
And so God is calling us to forgive in light of the cross. But sometimes when you have a big debt, you can only pay that incrementally. And so what God calls us to do is to come to him every day and to be able to ask him for grace to extend forgiveness to others. I have a house payment. It's a huge debt. It's going to take me a long time to pay it off. And so as I enter into relationships with people who have hurt me, sometimes I can't forgive the whole thing at once. But I can write a check for today. And the way I do that is by going to the cross, by going to my knees, receiving the forgiveness again that is mine in Christ, and saying, God, today, would you give me the grace and the strength to let them off the hook? to treat them as though they don't owe me anything, to pray that they would be blessed. I don't think that I can possibly think about letting them off the hook forever and ever the way that you have let me off the hook, but I can do it today through the strength that you give me. And so part of what we do when we pray for forgiveness and extend forgiveness to others is there's this desire to get with God on a daily basis and say, I don't have the emotional bandwidth in my checking account to do this forever, but I do today. And slowly over time, God, would you give me the ability to forgive their entire debt as you have forgiven mine? This is powerful stuff. It really deserves our attention. I read this week that uh, churches thrive most in an environment of forgiveness that love that survives conflict and disagreement is always deeper and more meaningful than shallow and surface love. Isn't that true? That we are to be the people of forgiveness because of how much we've been forgiven for. Do you know that you've been forgiven? I was reading this week that God's word is powerful. When God speaks, when God speaks, things that did not exist come into existence. When things that are dead are dead and God speaks, they come back to life. God says in the Psalms that when his voice goes out, it crushes the cedars of Lebanon. These huge trees, his voice goes out, swipes it clean. His word is powerful. It's living and active. It endures forever. Do you know what God has said about your sin? Listen, though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though your sins are red as crimson, this is God's word to you, they shall be like wool. Psalm 103, 12. As far as the east is from the west, so far has your sin been removed, your transgressions from me. 1 John 1, 9. And if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just, and he will forgive us our sins and purify us, cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the word of God. And he is saying that to you today. Would you come into his presence, not just today, but daily, and say, Lord, I'm so sorry. Daddy, I need to hear again. What did you say? You owe me nothing. I've paid for it. You are free. So let's pray together that God may speak those words to our hearts.
Lord, in very specific ways right now, we recognize that there is shame and that there is guilt. And there are things that if, we, if they were to be revealed in front of this church right now, we would all be embarrassed and want to crawl under the floor and hide. And so with the, that reality, our temptation, we don't know what to do in front of a holy God. We want to hide it and bury it and cover it up with concrete. And yet you call us out. You call us out in light of the cross to look at Jesus, to look at the cross, to see you hanging there and praying a prayer for us on the cross. Father, forgive them. They do not know what they do. Father, it is finished. The declaration has come in, Jesus says on the cross. And so may this be the week yet again. May this be the day yet again where we bring our whole hearts to you for cleansing. Specifically, full, clean confession and experience the cleansing and refreshment so that we can extend that into the community around us. God, may we be the people who do forgiveness better than anybody else. That's our identity, the forgiven people of God. May it be true of us. In Christ's name, amen.